Well, good afternoon, men. It's a joy for me to get to spend a little bit of time with you talking about this important subject. Uh, War of the Worldviews is the name of this particular session. And if that title sounds somewhat familiar, it is really a hat tip to a science fiction novel that was published all the way back in 1898, written by H.G. Wells called War of the Worlds. And of course, that science fiction novel actually was quite groundbreaking because it was one of the first science fiction pieces to depict an alien invasion of Earth. It was told from the standpoint of the narrator, first-person protagonist who watched an alien invasion take place right in front of his very eyes. And uh, that story, War of the Worlds, became even more famous 40 years after it was published because in 1938, another individual, also with the last name of Wells, this was Orson Wells, no relation to H.G. Wells, but Orson Wells took that story, adapted it for radio, and created a radio drama that he read live over radio. And the reason it became infamous, and I'm sure you've heard the story, is because there were people who tuned in late and didn't know that it was a radio drama and actually thought that there was an alien invasion taking place in the Midwest of the United States. Well, this afternoon I don't have any intention of talking about science fiction or of talking about alien invasions, but... I think it is a fitting title because when we look at our Western society, Western civilization, we recognize that our civilization is indeed under attack. And sometimes we feel like that first person protagonist as we see what's happening in the culture around us. And the reality is there are things that are happening that make us wonder what in the world is going on. We don't even recognize the culture, certainly against the backdrop of what many of us growing up thought was supposed to be some sort of Christian culture. So War of the Worldviews is what we're going to be talking about today. What is going on in Western society? How did we get here? And what is it that we as Christians and specifically spiritual leaders, church leaders, pastors, elders, What is it that we can do to promote and protect a biblical worldview? I want to begin with a basic question, and the basic question is, what is a worldview? You could define worldview in a number of different ways. I'm defining it here as a fundamental set of beliefs that comprise the lens through which a person or group of people interpret life, reality, and the world around them. In that sense, a worldview really represents the set of presuppositions through which you perceive everything. It is the beliefs that govern how you think, what you say, how you act. And so we might add this, a worldview provides the framework through which truth, morality, values, purpose, and meaning are defined understood, and pursued. And again, given what the history of our own nation here in the United States has been, I would argue going back to the Second Great Awakening, 
We have had sort of a, a sense about us that America is a Christian nation. That certainly is a sentiment that has been shared by many evangelicals, even going back to the George W. Bush era when evangelical politics were influential in that presidential election and people were kind of like, hey, we're still something of a Christian nation. I'm not sure that was ever totally true, but I think in recent years, we are waking up to the fact that we are not a Christian nation. We are Christians living in a nation that is at best post-Christian and oftentimes feels anti-Christian. And I'm going to argue that a lot of that has to do with these competing and conflicting worldviews that comprise Western civilization. Uh, It was just a few months ago in September of last year that George Barna conducted a survey. And I'll admit, I don't get a lot of my information from Barna, but I thought this was insightful. And he conducted a survey in which he was determining how many people in America hold to a biblical worldview. He had done other surveying that indicated that seven out of 10 Americans, 70%, still identify as Christians. So if you look at that data, 70% of Americans claim to be Christians. But how many of them actually hold to a biblical worldview? And by biblical worldview, he simply meant people who believe the Bible and want to live in a way that's consistent with the Bible, and specifically with the teachings of Jesus. So it was a very broad understanding, a very simplistic understanding of a biblical worldview. How many Americans hold to a biblical worldview? Well, according to Barna, in light of his recent study, only 6%. So 6 out of 100 Americans actually, in answer to the questions of the survey, gave answers that indicated that they want to live in a way that's consistent with biblical truth. So it's quite a disparity. We have 70 out of 100 Americans claiming to be Christian, but only 6 out of 100 who actually want to live in a way that's consistent with biblical truth. I think that's significant in light of our theme for this week, which is the remnant The reality is that we are a remnant and that the remnant is shrinking numerically, even though we, of course, rest in the power and work of the Lord. He added to that that of parents who have children who are under the age of 13, only two out of 100 American parents hold to a biblical worldview. And the reason that's significant, of course, is because parents represent the influence on the next generation, which means that the next generation is going to be, if these statistics hold, even a smaller group of Americans who actually hold to a biblical worldview. And then perhaps even more shocking than this, based on a study he had done a few months prior, also in 2022, he concluded that only 37% of pastors hold to a biblical worldview. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb, and I'm going to guess that that percentage in this room is much higher today. (laughs) But the reason this is significant, again, is because it gives us a little bit of a snapshot of the culture 
in which we are called to minister, a culture in which we are called to be faithful to uphold biblical truth and to promote and to protect a biblical worldview. Uh, Barna said this, and again, I thought this was helpful. He said, the American church has lowered the entry bar so much that it is difficult to identify any beliefs that disqualify one from claiming to be Christian. The parents of children under the age of 13 is a stellar example of this Christian nominalism that is widely accepted as spiritually normal and healthy. Uh, It's in the context of that study that Barna talks about some of the other worldviews that are so prevalent in American society. And we're going to talk a little bit about the history of that in just a moment. But some of those worldviews that he identifies would include secular humanism, which of course is a result of an atheistic naturalism. It's the idea that there is no God and therefore I am God. And secular humanism is one of, if not the most prevalent worldview in Western society today. It has replaced biblical truth with human rationalism, reason, and empiricism, science, and it convinces itself that God is not necessary for understanding the universe or the meaning and purpose of life. Another worldview would be that of deism. This would be moralistic deism. Deism is not atheistic. It acknowledges that God exists, but says that God doesn't care about me or how I live. It is the idea of the watchmaker who created the world and then walked away and is now hands off. God is transcendent, but not imminent in the deistic worldview. And this, I think, is probably one of the most prevalent or prevalent uh, worldviews in Nominal Christian circles where people say, yeah, I believe in God, but that belief makes no difference or has no bearing on how I live. I'm just trying to be a good person, hence the moralistic side of deism. Then you have the influence of Eastern mysticism, the idea that there's some sort of higher plane of spiritual reality to which one can transcend that has influenced Western society Social or cultural Marxism, we obviously have seen that in just the last few years with wokeness and liberation theology and all of that and its influence. And then nihilism, which is just the hopelessness of the fact that all of life is meaningless, so nothing I do matters. And Barna's point in identifying some of these competing worldviews is really quite interesting. He concludes in that survey that it's not any one of these worldviews that is the main competitor to a biblical worldview, but rather that in American society, what many have done is they have taken bits and pieces of each of these worldviews to create a syncretistic worldview in which they claim to be Christian, but when it's convenient, they operate as a humanist or a deist or a mystic or a Marxist, or a nihilist. And so he says that the actual predominant worldview in America is that of syncretism. Syncretism not of all of these traditional false religions, but rather of false philosophical systems that are equally deadly and damaging. 
All right, I want to talk a little bit about how we got here, because again, we generally think, especially in Christian circles of Western society, as being traditionally Christian. And certainly here in the United States, we think of America as being a Christian nation, at least historically. So how did we get to this place? This is going to be a bit simplistic. We could certainly dive much deeper into this discussion, but I think it's helpful in understanding worldview issues. If we were to go back to the 14th and 15th centuries, the late Middle Ages in Western Europe, and of course, when we talk about Western civilization, we're talking about that which comes out of the Western half of the Roman Empire, Western Europe, and then Western European expansion to places all across the globe. And if we were to look at the late Middle Ages, what we would find was that the predominant worldview was that of Roman Catholicism. And in Roman Catholicism, what is the basic authority for how to view the world, the lens through which people see the world? It is through the authority of religious tradition, the magisterium of the church, that which uh, the pope and the cardinals and the magisterium have determined one must believe. And this results in sacramental traditionalism and synergism as an approach to Life And of course, Roman Catholicism is still uh, something that we encounter today. That then was, or came into conflict with, it was opposed by the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. And the Protestant Reformation recovered biblical Christianity. And so when it comes to our worldview, it is this worldview that we champion and that we love. It is a worldview in which the authority of Scripture is given primacy. It's the supremacy and authority and sufficiency of Scripture. And out of our commitment to God's authority and the authority of His Word, we get the truth of the gospel. In fact, if you were to think of the five solas of the Reformation, sola scriptura, Sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, and soli Deo gloria, all of them flow out of one central Reformation conviction. That Reformation conviction was Christ alone as the head of the church. And if you were to go back and look at John Wycliffe and John Huss and those who came before the Reformation, and then Martin Luther and John Calvin and, and John Knox and all of the others, what they share in common is a commitment to the lordship and supremacy of Christ above any other authority. And if Jesus Christ is the Lord of the church, which he is, then his word must be the authority for the church. That's sola scriptura. That scripture alone is our final authority. And if scripture is our final authority, then flowing out of that, the gospel that is revealed on the pages of scripture is the true gospel, and it is a gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, based on the finished work of Christ alone. And if he did it all and I did nothing, even as we heard Dr. Lawson in our first session this morning, then all of the glory goes not to me, but to him, soli deo gloria. So the Reformation recovers a biblical world view, and that's why we celebrate the Reformation. It was just 
six years ago now that we celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. It's not that Christianity is only 500 years old, not at all. The reason we celebrate that event is because we share so much in common with the convictions of those men because they recovered a biblical worldview. But as we move into the 17th and 18th centuries, we enter into what we call the age of reason or the age of the Enlightenment. Reason being human reason and the Enlightenment being the endarkenment, if that was actually a word. So, and we'll talk a little bit later about what 1 Corinthians 1 tells us about the wisdom of man versus the wisdom of God. But in Western civilization, the Enlightenment is an example of how the wisdom of man is foolishness in the eyes of God. It was in the early 1600s that Rene Descartes published a book called A Discourse on the Method, in which he championed a view that became known as rationalism, which essentially said that human reason is all that you need to explain the entire universe. Descartes' famous statement, I think, therefore I am, is more than an internet meme or a bumper sticker or a t-shirt slogan. It was a philosophical really shift, a change in the way that Western society thought about the world. I think, therefore I am, is the idea that my reason is all I need to explain my existence and the world around me. Around that same time in Britain, we had some British scientists, guys like John Locke and Francis Bacon, who began to develop what became known as empiricism. Empiricism is the idea that by studying nature, I can figure out the natural world and the physical universe. Rationalism and empiricism, reason and science, became then for Western civilization a replacement for biblical truth. And as a result of the Enlightenment, Western civilization began to to reject both religious traditionalism and also biblical revelation. In fact, it was this emphasis on reason and science that led to a naturalistic understanding of the universe, which says that the material universe is all that there is, and therefore I don't need supernatural explanations for why things happen Well, the moment you say you don't need supernatural explanations for anything, you immediately exclude God from the picture. But nobody wants to live, even the unbelievers don't want to live in a world that's all just philosophers and scientists. It's a bunch of lab coats walking around. That sounds really boring and and horrible. And so there was a reaction to rationalism and empiricism called romanticism. Romanticism is the idea that the meaning of life is found in art and beauty and in the pursuit of recreation and pleasure. And so with the Enlightenment, though Romanticism was a reaction to rationalism, the two eventually really work in tandem with one another. The Enlightenment produces a worldview in which God is excluded Everything I need to know about the universe is explained through reason or science, and the meaning of my life is reduced to the pursuit of my own happiness through things like the arts and music and recreation. 
I was listening to one historian who made the comment that people in Western society are born in rationalism and raised in romanticism. And what he meant by that is you're born into a society that tells you that reason and science is the authority and your own happiness is the goal of your life. That is a product of the Enlightenment, and it is in direct competition to a biblical worldview. In fact, I think you see this illustrated in history, the difference between the Westminster Assembly in the mid-17th century and the Bill of Rights and the American Constitution one century later in the mid-18th century. The first question of the shorter catechism of the Westminster Catechism is, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And then the second question is, how do you do that? It's through the Scriptures. But what does the American Bill of Rights say? Well, that it's one of your inalienable rights to pursue your own happiness, right? The pursuit of happiness is considered a right within the American context. It just demonstrates the distinction and the difference that was made by the influence of the Enlightenment. One coming out of a biblical worldview, pursue God and love Him. The other coming out of an Enlightenment worldview, your own happiness is your ultimate end. Uh, Just to make the PowerPoint a little less boring, I put three pictures in it. Uh, Here you have Rene Descartes and a couple of the British empiricists. Now, one more picture, and I want to tell you a little bit of a story about Friedrich Schleiermacher. Schleiermacher is an important figure, and not in the good way, but he's an important figure in terms of worldviews and the syncretism that we were even talking about earlier. When Barna says that only 37% of pastors in America hold to a truly biblical worldview, I think what he's saying is that the other 63% are involved in some sort of syncretistic approach in which they're trying to claim Christianity on the one hand and yet backfill things from other worldviews, whether it be reason or science or uh, the romantic pursuit of self-indulgence and existentialism and those things. Schleiermacher is an example of that very thing. Schleiermacher grew up in a minister's home. His father was a chaplain for the German army. He professed faith as a young man. And then kind of a typical story even today, he went off to university. And in the university, he encountered some of the critical attacks on the veracity and the historicity of the Bible. And as a result, he had a shipwreck of faith. Of course, we understand that means he never had true faith to begin with. But he wrote his dad a letter back in the fall of 1786. He wrote his dad a letter in which he expressed to his father that he was hearing all of these critical attacks on biblical Christianity. His father was sympathetic, wrote back and said, you know, I've heard some of those same things. I really don't think there's anything to them. You really should just dismiss those things. And then in January of 1787, a little more than a decade before H.G. Wells wrote his science fiction novel, Schleiermacher wrote another letter to his dad in which he confessed that those doubts were actually his own doubts. 
And he said to his dad, I can no longer believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. I no longer believe that Jesus is the son of God or that he died as an atoning sacrifice for sin. It's a sad story. What makes Schleiermacher's story, though, unique is in spite of the fact that he no longer believed in the fundamental tenets of the Christian faith, he still wanted to be known as a Christian. He still wanted to use the label Christian. In fact, he went on and taught at the University of Berlin as a professor of theology. Schleiermacher is known as the father of modern liberal theology, and uh, sometimes it's called progressive Christianity, sometimes it's called theological liberalism, but what it is at its core is it is that which calls itself Christian but no longer believes the Bible. And in Schleiermacher's case, he actually argued that the rationalism and empiricism of that third box on the screen that we had up earlier, so, uh, so uh, undermined the authenticity and veracity of a biblical worldview that he wanted his Christianity to be founded on something other than the Bible. For Schleiermacher, he found that in Romanticism. Remember, Romanticism is about feelings. It's about uh, pursuing that which is subjective, And so Schleiermacher argued for a Christian faith that was based not on biblical truth, but rather on some sort of subjective feeling of dependence on God. It would be a generation later that another German theologian, a guy named Albrecht Ritschel, would say, well, I want to have a Christianity that's based not on feelings and also not on the Bible, but rather on social effort and social justice. And out of that will come the social gospel in the early 20th century. So this has been happening for a long time, is my point, is people claiming to be Christian, but abandoning the very essence of a Christian worldview, which is the veracity and the truthfulness of the Word of God. And of course, you men know that, but it's interesting to see the history of it. Now, thankfully... In the 19th century, up against this rising current of liberalism coming out of Germany and other places in Europe and making its way across the Atlantic, we have the Princeton theologians, guys like Charles Hodge, his son A.A. A. Hodge, Archibald Alexander Hodge, B.B. Warfield, and others who really stand as a beachhead against this kind of liberal attack. In spite of their best efforts to defend the scriptures, and look at what Warfield says. I love this quote. It just really summarizes the heartbeat of a biblical worldview. The church has always believed her scriptures to be the book of God, of which God was in such a sense the author that every one of them, uh, that every one of its affirmations of whatever kind is to be esteemed as the utterance of God of infallible truth and authority. The authority, the inerrancy, the inspiration, the infallibility, the sufficiency of Scripture is what Warfield is affirming in that quote. 
But as this wave of liberal attack on the scriptures makes its way across the Atlantic, what we find in the United States is a fight for the denominations. And this is history that some of you know, but I think it's helpful for us to understand. Fundamentalism tends to be a negative term in our world today. Uh, There are those within Christian circles who think of fundamentalism in terms of sort of uh, social legalism. There are those in the broader secular world who think fundamentalism is a term that can be applied to extremist groups of any religion. But the reality is that the term fundamentalist and fundamentalism was first applied to Bible-believing Christians because they were willing to fight for the fundamentals of the faith. And so as modernism or liberalism began to influence American institutions and also American denominations, Bible-believing Christians worked together to confront that theological liberalism. And that fight began in the 19th century and culminated in the early 20th century. There were five key areas of attack by the liberals on Bible-believing Christianity. And these were actually five points that were summarized by the Presbyterians in 1910 in what is called the Portland Declaration. They were the five main points of attack by liberals on biblical Christianity. What were those? Well, it was the inerrancy of Scripture. And then secondly, the virgin birth and deity of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, his substitutionary atonement. Fourth, his bodily resurrection. And then finally, the authenticity of Christian miracles. And you can see in that that there is this anti-supernaturalism that is characterizing the liberal attack, which of course is in keeping with a modernistic or empirical slash rationalistic worldview, that naturalistic materialism that denies any involvement of God at all. And so this was the place where American Bible-believing Christians, fundamentalists, took their stand defending these five doctrines. In that sense, this represented Bible-believing Christians from across denominational lines and really was sort of the original together for the gospel movement. From 1910 to 1915, there was a group of scholars actually down at the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, Biola, who put together a series of articles that defended those key points of doctrine, and they were called the fundamentals. And so in 1920, there was a reporter for the Watchman Examiner named Curtis Lee Laws who actually coined the term fundamentalist. I just think it's interesting that the term fundamentalist specifically applies to Bible-believing Christians who believe those truths and are willing to contend earnestly for those truths. In that sense, we are all historic fundamentalists. I know some of you don't want to wear that label. That's okay. (laughs) Fundamentalism versus modernism. As we move forward a little bit in the 1920s and 30s, battle for the denominations really peaked. And in 1925, you kind of see this cultural clash of worldviews 
play out in what's called the Scopes Monkey Trial, which I'm sure some of you are familiar with. There was a biology teacher in Tennessee named John Scopes. At that time in Tennessee, it was illegal to teach on Darwinistic evolution in public schools. He was a public school biology teacher, and the ACLU convinced him to teach on evolution and break the rules. And when he did that, he got in trouble and the whole thing went to court. A very famous defense attorney named Clarence Darrow defended John Scopes, and a very famous prosecutor actually had run for president, even though he lost, named William Jennings Bryan, represented the prosecution. And Bryan actually won in the court case. So the court case went to the creationists. (laughs) But because it was such a publicized event, in the court of public opinion, most Americans felt like Bryan and the prosecution was being anti-progress, anti-science. And fundamentalism began to be viewed not as the fabric of American culture, but as that which was backwards and needed to be left behind. So it's an interesting development in these culture wars with the 1925 Scopes Monkey Trial. In the 1930s, late 1920s, 1930s, even into the 1940s, the main denominations, the mainline denominations were all lost to Protestant liberalism. So the main denominations in the United States at that time would have been the Methodist denominations, the Presbyterian, and the Baptist denominations. And all of those denominations went liberal. And as they went liberal, conservative fundamentalists had to make decisions about when and how to leave those denominations. And many of them started new institutions, new denominations, and new schools. The one mainline denomination that was eventually recovered was the Southern Baptist denomination. We're grateful for that. I think many of us, whether you're associated with the SBC or not, are grateful for how God has used the SBC and curious to see what's going to happen to the SBC in the future. Out of this then in the 1940s arose another organization or another, I guess, identification called New Evangelicalism. There was an organization that was part of it in 1942, something called the National Association of Evangelicals for United Action was formed, and Neo-Evangelicalism, which today we just call Evangelicalism, was born. And the Evangelicals, their goal was to be the friendly face of fundamentalism. And they uh, had an organization, the NAE, National Association of Evangelicals. Uh, They started a school. In fact, the first evangelical seminary to come out of this was called Fuller Theological Seminary and started by John Ockengay and others, Carl F.H. Henry. And and then they, they had kind of a spokesman, and that person was Billy Graham with the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Of course, in the 1970s and 80s, evangelicalism grew increasingly political, and today, sadly, the term evangelical doesn't really mean anything anymore, and we are where we are. So that's just a little bit of the backdrop of the history when we think about how secularism has influenced Western society and where we are even in terms of the church today. I want to talk just for a moment about when worldviews collide. 
And I'm focusing primarily on that, again, the humanistic, secular, deistic influences in Western society that have become so prominent ever since the age of the Enlightenment. In fact, it was Friedrich Nietzsche, a name that some of you will remember, a famous nihilist. He's most famous for a story about a raving madman who cries out, God is dead. And uh, sometimes you'll see sort of even Christian internet memes or bumper stickers or other things that are like, no, Nietzsche is dead, right? And it's like, ooh, we got him. Um, (laughs) But in context, in context, and listen, I'm no fan of Nietzsche and I'm no fan of nihilism, so let me just say that clearly and plainly. But in context, Nietzsche was talking through a character, this raving madman, who is speaking out to the rest of his European audience saying, God is dead and we have killed him, meaning the Enlightenment, because of its emphasis on reason and science, killed theism within the mainstream of Western philosophical thought. And so we do find ourselves as truly a remnant because we who know the truth are very much in the minority. So, As worldviews collide, how are we to think about those things? Well, one passage of Scripture that I think is so helpful on this is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And just want to quickly draw out a couple of observations from what Paul writes there. Because the Apostle Paul makes it so clear that... The unbelieving world, in claiming to be wise, actually exhibits absolute folly and turns wisdom on its head. In fact, I, was, I had a conversation with a cousin of mine, not, that was a few years ago, and we were just talking about how crazy things are getting in our society, right? It's the back half of Romans chapter 1. It's the downward spiral It's where the irrational has been deemed as rational. I mean, you watch the evening news or you read the headlines on your favorite news app or wherever you get information about what's going on in the world around you and you just go, the entire world's gone crazy. Um, Well, that's what Romans 1 says happens when a society abandons God. So my biblical worldview explains why the world has gone crazy. But I was talking with my cousin and he said, you know, growing up in a Christian home, I remember my parents reading the Proverbs to us. And I remember thinking as a kid, this was him talking. I remember thinking as a kid, this isn't really that profound. This is just common sense. The Proverbs. He said, but as I've gotten older and as I've seen our society get worse and worse, I realize that that's not just common sense. That's God's truth. And it's only common sense when you have the biblical worldview to understand how what the Creator has said about reality maps onto reality. Isn't it interesting how the Proverbs are becoming such uncommon sense in these days? All right, a couple of essential differences between the secular worldview and the biblical worldview. 
certainly the definition of, of wisdom, what the world calls wisdom, God calls foolishness, what God calls wisdom, the world calls foolishness. And you can see in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 21, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And Paul goes on to describe in that text that that which we know is the wisdom of God, the plan of salvation, the unbelieving world mocks at and scoffs at. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And if you were here on Sunday, you heard Vodi Bakum preach on that passage. If you were not here on Sunday morning, you should go listen online to Vodi Bakum preach on that passage because he did such a great job expositing that text. Not only a distinction in terms of wisdom, but also a distinction in terms of the point of history. And by this, I mean, by point, I mean both the centerpiece of history and also the purpose of history. What the world regards as a scandal, namely a crucified Messiah, God reveals to be the very epicenter of his redemptive work. And so you see there in 1 Corinthians 1, 22 to 25, the Jews ask for signs, the Greeks seek for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. And I just love how Paul emphasizes that point. In fact, if you were to look in 1 Corinthians 1, back at verse 17, he talks about how he did not come in cleverness of speech because he didn't want the message to be emptied of its power. Instead, he wanted to preach the plain gospel because he recognized that it was the plain gospel that the Spirit uses to accomplish the work. And then you see a third essential difference, and that is with regard to the goal of life, right? Secular humanism wants the goal of life to be all about self-pleasure and self-gratification. The world chases power, fortune, and fame, but God selects those who are weak, poor, and ignoble. And... It's great on this passage, I got help from others who are more capable than I, right? Vodi Bauckham took verses 18 to 25, and you can listen to that if you go to the Grace Church website and download his message. Phil Johnson tomorrow morning is preaching this passage. I found that out yesterday. So I'm going to let him explain this passage because uh, it's just so powerful. But not many noble, not many mighty, not many... Uh, who are wise according to the flesh. And that's because God defines the things that make us who we are in terms of useful to him. He defines those things so differently than the world. And then the very way of salvation, as Paul ends that chapter, those whom the world regards as unworthy, God declares to be worthy through the work of his Son. And so coming out of a passage where he says the world considers believers to be not many mighty, not many wise, not many noble, 
sort of the riffraff of society. Even Dr. Lawson referenced that this morning. I love that we just washed up on shore comment. But here we know that it's by God's doing that you are in Christ Jesus, who because of him, he became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And that's the reality is those who have a biblical worldview, our boasting is in Christ because it's only in him that we have any value at all. But I mention this passage because I think it outlines some of the key differences between a biblical worldview and and a secular, non-Christian worldview. We define wisdom differently than the world does, and we view history differently than the world views history, both in terms of what's happened in the past and where history is going in the future. And we understand the goal of our own lives to be very different than that of the world around us and, of course, the way of salvation. And the the point of all of this is that a Christian worldview is utterly incompatible with that of a secular worldview. And one of the great lies of American post-Enlightenment Western culture, I threw in maybe an extra adjective there, but you get the point. One of the lies of our cultural norm is that we are told that secularism is not a false religion. But secularism is the false religion of Western society. And we can be tempted to think that we can flirt with worldliness because it's not the idolatry that the Israelites fought against in the Old Testament, but it's just as dangerous and oftentimes is far more subtle. And so as we battle for a Christian worldview and battle against a secular worldview, we need to be reminded of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? And the answer to all of those rhetorical questions is nothing. Nothing. All right, I want to talk just a little bit about guarding the truth. Um, Just a couple of thoughts. And again, this is is basic in many ways, but I hope it serves as an encouragement to you, even as you think about going back and encouraging your people, because the... Secular worldview is everywhere around us. It's pumped into our homes through the internet. It's everywhere we go when we go shopping. It's what we listen to when we turn on our radios or turn on our TVs. It's something that we are constantly being inundated with. And so we must not allow ourselves to be captivated by the enticements and entanglements of a non-Christian worldview. What Paul said in Colossians is so true. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of men or according to the elementary principles of the world. And he goes on to talk about setting your eyes on Christ or what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12.1, that we would avoid the entanglements as we seek to run the race with endurance. We need as spiritual leaders to personally immerse ourselves 
in the rich truth of the word of God so that we are renewing our minds daily. And like Timothy, we need to do the hard work of being approved workmen who rightly divide the word of truth, as 2 Timothy 2.15 says. And then we need to equip our people with the word of God, because if you're going to have a biblical worldview, you have to be biblical. (laughs) So it's really that simple. If you were looking for some amazing insight this afternoon, you came to the wrong seminar. Having a biblical worldview is about being biblical. And, you know, one of the places that I think we see that so clearly is in Paul's letter to Timothy. It's so interesting in 2 Timothy, it's really, it's different than the other pastoral epistles. The other pastoral epistles are about how to do church. But 2 Timothy is a plea for Timothy to stand firm when so many around him are defecting. And you have uh, Hymenaeus and Philetus and Hermogenes and Phagellus at the end of chapter 1 and then chapter 2, verse 15, four names given of men who defected. And then, of course, in chapter 4, verse 10, you have the most famous defector in the book, Demas, having loved this present world, has gone away, has deserted me. And in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, it's, it's, it's against the backdrop of the danger of defection. And it's so interesting, in the first five verses of chapter 3, Paul gives all of these characteristics of how men will go from bad to worse and how at the end of the age, these are the things that are going to characterize people. And that's true generally, but I think specifically in the context, it's about the character of those who defect. And you see their actions and their attitudes and even their false appearances. But at the heart of it, Paul lists three affections. He said they love money, they love pleasure, and they're lovers of themselves. And even as I was reflecting on that text and I was thinking about the three most famous apostates in the New Testament, defectors in the New Testament, isn't it interesting that you have one who loved money, Judas, one who loved this world and pleasure, Demas, and one who loved himself, Diotrephes. So guard your heart, right? And in chapter, in chapter 3, verses 6 through 9, Paul talks about the false promises that falsehood makes. It promises freedom, but only captivates. It promises truth, but only leads to error. It promises enlightenment, but only uh, darkens the minds of those who follow it. It promises wisdom, but it's folly. Then he talks about the catalyst in which these things happen against the backdrop of persecution. And then he gives the antidote to all of it, which is what I wanted to get to, which is that the word of God is the antidote to defection. It's the antidote to being captivated into this compromising idea that you can have a syncretistic worldview. And sure, the Bible's good for some stuff, but I need other authorities for other things. I mean, why do we do biblical counseling? Because we believe in biblical authority and counseling. Why do we do presuppositional apologetics? Because we believe in biblical authority and apologetics. Why do we do expository preaching? Because we believe in biblical authority and preaching. It all comes back to the Bible. And so Paul tells Timothy in verses 14 and 15, it's the truth of God's word that leads to salvation, right? The things you learned in the scriptures that lead to the knowledge of salvation through faith in Christ. And then 
It's also the truth of God's word that leads to sanctification. The, two of the most famous verses in the New Testament, all scripture is inspired of God and is profitable. But really that verse is, or those verses are a reminder that if you're going to be complete and equipped for every good work, it's going to come through the all-sufficient word of God. And then thirdly, it is the truth of God's word that leads to sound doctrine. And this is chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. This is why you preach in season and out of season, and you don't tickle ears. It's so that you and your people will be grounded in sound doctrine. And you can see how Paul makes that point. Uh, The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but you're to preach the word in season and out of season. So it's the word of God, the truth of the word of God that leads to salvation, the truth of the word of God that leads to sanctification through the power of the Holy Spirit, and the truth of the word of God that establishes your own heart and the heart of your people in sound doctrine. So finally, as we think about engaging the culture I just think it's helpful to say the obvious, and that is, number one, don't be fooled into thinking that the way to reach the world is to adopt worldly thinking. Um, In our own, one of the classes that I teach at the seminary is historical theology, and we talk a lot about the church fathers, and we spend time talking about how some of the church fathers were really influenced and inundated by Platonic, Greek Platonic philosophy coming from Plato, Platonism, and the Platonic dualism and all those things. And it's easy to look back and be like, why were those guys so influenced by that? But a helpful reflection coming out of that is to realize that we also can be influenced by the popular philosophical streams of our day. I think a good example of that is those who are so influenced by an evolutionary explanation for cosmology. Uh, What is is evolution but rationalism and empiricism constructed within an atheistic, naturalistic worldview trying to explain away a creator? It's so much better to just open up Genesis 1 and 2 and be like, I believe that. That's a biblical worldview, right? It's called being biblical. Okay. So be faithful to proclaim biblical truth with compassion and grace and to trust the Spirit to do the work in the heart. And certainly Hebrews 4, it's the Word of God that pierces the the innermost parts of the soul. 1 Peter 3.15, we're to be always ready to make a defense for the hope that is in us with gentleness and reverence. Don't compromise your commitment to a biblical worldview and equip your people with the truth of God's word so that they can think biblically, viewing the world around them through the lens of Scripture. And that's really the big takeaway today is just for me to say, I know that you men are being faithful. I'm confident that you are. I'm confident that you're getting into the pulpit week in and week out. You're going into the counseling office week in and week out, and you're bringing God's word to bear 
on the lives of your people. And there may be moments where you get discouraged and you ask yourself, is this really working? And I just want to encourage you to stay the course because that is the only hope both for them and for you. 2 Corinthians 10.5, this is my last slide. When it comes to worldviews, we analyze them always against the backdrop of Scripture. And so Paul says, we destroy every speculation, every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And as we preach and teach the Word of God faithfully, And as the Spirit takes that truth and transforms lives, saving them and sanctifying them and transforming them into the image of our Savior, that's the way we combat a culture that's being inundated by false systems and philosophies. So to that end, let's be faithful. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the opportunity to talk through these important things. There's so much that's going on in the world around us that to us doesn't make any sense because it's so contrary to your word. And yet we know that the answer is not in political activism. It's not in um, anything other than the gospel of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and in the truth of your word, which is the sword that you've given us to use, empowered by your spirit. May we be faithful to do what you've called us to do as those who are workmen seeking to be approved. We long to see your son. We long to be in his presence. We pray these things in his name. Amen.